This is an ABC podcast. If not at 70% and 80%, then when? Would Australia be closer to reopening if the Prime Minister had not failed his two jobs on vaccine and quarantine? Unfortunately, in the background, actions are still proving that they don't get it. Nobody is telling us exactly what's involved in the plan. Australia seems to have left it far too late to help those who helped us. I've had a gutful. I have had an absolute gutful. Hello and welcome to The Party Room. I'm Patricia Carvellis, the host of RM Breakfast, joining you from Wurundjeri Country. And I'm Frank Kelly from Afternoon Briefing, joining you from Gadigal Land. And Sydney Morning Herald's National Affairs Editor, James Masola, is going to be joining us today. He's had an absolutely bumper week of news breaking, so keen to get his insights. He's also up in Queensland, so with a bit of a bird's eye view of how this election is playing in some key marginal seats that could actually decide the outcome of this campaign, this election. First, PK, what are we, day five? Let's just remind everyone, though, of that moment on Sunday morning when Scott Morrison finally fired off the starter's gun. Our government is not perfect. We've never claimed to be. But we are up front. And you may see some flaws, but you can also see what we have achieved for Australia in incredibly difficult times. And you can see our plan. Our plan will deliver more and better jobs and the lowest unemployment seen in some 50 years. So that was the pitch from the Prime Minister. And this is what Anthony Albanese had to say the day the election was officially called. Australians have been magnificent in making sacrifices to overcome the challenges of the pandemic, of floods, of bushfires. It has shown the strength of our society, but it's also shown our vulnerabilities of our economy and where we need to make improvement. So as we emerge from this, Australians deserve better. This government doesn't have an agenda for today, let alone a vision for tomorrow. So, Fran, the leaders laying out their main themes for the election, and those themes, I think, um, they tried to prosecute all week in different ways. But ultimately, I think it's Scott Morrison's main message that he started with on Sunday that dominated. Often in campaigns, you have to look at you know, they want to fight on their territory. We know Labor wants to fight on the territory of health particularly, but on service delivery and on competence. But the Prime Minister wants it all about jobs and the economy. He says, you know, he knows, he's basically conceded he doesn't think he's too popular. Uh, In many different forms of ways he'd said that, but he says it's better than an opposition you don't know. It seems to me that, you know, he's been successful at trying to keep the campaign on his issues. Well, let's face it, he's been successful, PK, because he had a lot of help from Anthony Albanese. So Anthony Albanese started off all right. The opposition's main pitch is, you know, the government has a plan for their re-election, not a plan for you and for tomorrow. That was basically it. Uh, Scott Morrison's pitch there, as we heard a little of it, is that, you know, we've delivered on the economy, happened to mention the low unemployment rate, and uh, his ongoing message is you can't trust Labor, there's a risk. So they were the competing messages. Anthony Albanese starting off all right because they're focusing really to a large extent on the electorate's dislike of Scott Morrison. But, you know, PK, things came unstuck for Anthony Albanese very, very quickly. National unemployment rate at the moment is uh, 
I think it's 5.4, sorry, I'm not sure what it is. It really was uh, an unfortunate gaffe for the Labor leader, particularly because uh, the the central argument that the government has been making is that Labor um, can't handle the economy, that, that only the government's been able to drive down the unemployment rate to record lows, and it, there are record lows. And so it was they were able to pounce on what was a brain fade, you know, that's ultimately what it was, to make a broader argument that this that he wasn't across his brief, that he didn't understand the substantial issues. Now, we're recording this on a Thursday morning just before we go off, well, lots of people go off on the Easter break, and the Prime Minister's just done a pretty substantial press conference in the seat of Bass, actually in the same sort of, in, in Tasmania where the original gaffe was made, and he made this point, which I thought was really quite potent, which was essentially to say it's not that he forgot it, it's that he doesn't understand what it's about. And that's the argument that the coalition wants to run. Now, mm. I want to acknowledge that a lot of our listeners have said this week, you focus too much on one gaffe. And uh, it was even Adam Band who was asked a question at his press conference, not press conference, at his National Press Club address about, you know, a figure. And he said, you know, Google it. These are just silly moments. I understand what people are saying, but this was the first day of the campaign and that brain fade kind of took his mojo and changed the tone of the campaign for the first week to his detriment and it really gave just a, it was an own goal and he knows it. The Labor campaign knows it. It gave the Prime Minister uh, everything he needed. It gave him sort of full petrol in the tank, didn't it, Fran, to go on and to just smash Labor on this argument around the economy. It absolutely did. As it sapped Labor campaign confidence, starting with Albanese down, it sort of put real pep in the government step. And we've seen a lot of, you know, big uh, shifts from the Prime Minister in this week that have really not perhaps got the attention they deserved because of the, all the attention's been on Anthony Albanese and his gaffe. Yes, a lot of people saying, look, you know, journalists and their gotcha moments, what do they mean? Even John Howard said, so what? He didn't know the unemployment rate, so what? Which was kind of a big help to Anthony Albanese, I think, that comment from John Howard. The, the truth is, uh, Anthony Albanese, there is no way in hell he hasn't known the unemployment number. We all know it, if you've been paying any attention over the last year, but I think what it was, was revealed he was rattled by the size and the ferocity of the press pack. There's a lot more pressure once you get in that cauldron of a campaign trail. He's not used to it. He had his head full of the lines he was supposed to deliver and then the wheels fell off. So as you say, the biggest danger for Labor and Anthony Albanese now is what this has done to the confidence levels of their leader and their campaign. They've got this Easter break. They're hoping for a reset. Anthony Albanese has been around a long time. He's a pretty tough political operator. Um, but, you know, is he the kind of guy who can reset and get his mojo back, as you say? So we're recording this Thursday. His press conference on Thursday, I thought, was his best performance yet. Uh, he was able to stay uh, on message, not fumble any answers in any substantial way that I was able to uh, witness. And clearly uh, there has been already a reset even before the Easter break, although my understanding is there's going to be a bigger one over the next couple of days when people are switched off. Good Friday, um, Easter Sunday, they, you know, people don't really want to hear much about from politicians, nor should they. Everyone needs a break from from all of that. Um, so, you know, he's got, he's got a couple of days. And the other big 
benefit of this timing is that it did happen at the start of the campaign, not the end. So we're, we're political tragics. Um, subscribers to our podcast, thank you, uh, are political tragics if you've, if you've bothered to, to subscribe. But for those Australians who, who are busy doing other things and aren't, aren't uh, highly engaged, it's really the last couple of weeks of the campaign where people are switched on. So the timing... Uh, you know, it's, it was an unfortunate moment for Labor because it gave the government that initial impetus to go hard on its messages. But ultimately, the timing means that Labor has time to recover. It's a long six-week campaign and, uh, you know, be able to really reset its message. Um, my view, though, is that the bigger issue for Labor at the moment, I just want to mention this, is that I feel like if you had to do a quiz, I could tell you what the government's campaign is and I feel like I don't know what Labor's is yet and I'm being very frank, I feel like the Labor campaign has had a lot of messages, not one central one, whereas the, the government's message is better the devil you know. You don't the have government's to like message jobs, is you, jobs, can't, jobs. you can't trust that guy who made yeah. that big mistake on and, day one. And but it I, might be infuriating for people to hear that and go, well, that's not a vision. That's a fair critique, but it is potent, it's repeated, and if you look at political history, that stuff often works, Fran. No, that's true, because also what it does is it lets the government off its hook. The government hasn't had a perfect week either. I mean, the Prime Minister, you know, very early on, acknowledged that Alan Tudge, who was the Education Minister, till he stepped aside because there was allegations made by a former staffer, is still in his is still his Education Minister and will be back in Cabinet uh, if the government is re-elected. And everyone's going, well, what? You told us earlier he'd stepped aside from the Cabinet because of all of this. Um, and then we also find out there's going to be a half a million dollar payment to the former Liberal staffer of Alan Tudge, Rochelle Miller, who last year accused her boss of bullying. He denied that. There's been an inquiry that cleared Alan Tudge of any breach of ministerial standards. Uh, that's not necessarily a wide scope clearance, but the issue is and the difficulty here is we don't know what that $500,000 payout to Ms Miller is for. Is it for treatment at the hands of of her former boss, Alan Tudge, treatment at the hands of her other boss, Michaela Cash. We don't know. All we know is she's going to get half a million dollars of taxpayers' money and the Prime Minister says Alan Tudge is still his education minister. I've got to say, the Prime Minister's response on this, and I know why people get frustrated, it was just quite brazen. <laughs> it was just, yeah, he's in my cabinet. Like it Always all, has been? Yeah, we're all stupid here. Like, I don't know, I, I remember him standing aside. There's an acting minister. Like, it's all just fine. It's just for the campaign, basically. And what, what's, what are you talking about? Uh, mm, brazen understatement. Uh, and he just does it. This is the thing about the Prime Minister's strategy. His whole way is just to do it with such confidence that it's as if, how ridiculous are you a moron for even asking? Well, no, we're not morons. Um, it's a reasonable question. There was absolutely the impression that this man had been stood aside. I didn't know he was definitely going to be in Cabinet after the uh, election campaign. That wasn't clear to me. Uh, and I think that this money, which is public money, half a million dollars is the reported amount. I think we do. We are entitled to understand what's gone on here. And if it does, and we don't know, Fran, if it does, but if it does pertain to Alan Tudge, he stays on as a Cabinet Minister, well... I think questions should be answered by the Prime Minister about how exactly that works. 
so, yeah, both leaders, I don't think, you know, have ha- have really um, had the most overwhelmingly excellent weeks. But, uh, look, they both have a pathway to victory, and I reckon it's time to just figure out what that pathway might look like. Should we bring our guest in? Let's do it. <laughs> James Masola is the National Affairs Editor for the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age. Welcome to the party room, James. Thanks, Peggy. Good to be with you. Uh, James, we've just been discussing that Anthony Albanese had a pretty rough week. With a disruption like this to the start of your campaign, a political party might want to, you know, normally in normal times pull out a really big policy to change the focus. Is it a problem for the Labor campaign, James, that they've gone, you know, smaller target. I won't call it small target because I do think they've got some substantial policies, but they're all out there. They've got nothing sort of really big in their kit bag to sort of switch focus. Yeah, look, I agree, Fran. I thought the um, opposition would throw out a big policy announcement following that disastrous Monday uh, press conference. And it really it really wasn't great. I sort of can't overstate that enough. It was hard to remember a worse, but I can't recall. No, I can't recall one either. And I've seen a lot of them. Yeah, indeed. Um, They haven't. Um, I was talking, in fact, though, to someone in Labor HQ uh, last night, and they made the point that if they'd rolled something out the next day or over the next two days, it might be they might then be accused of having a or attempting a sort of a hey look over there you mm. know don't focus on what the leader's just done look at this new shiny bauble so that you know the point being they'd be damned either way so maybe that's why they held back but they'll be kind of desperate I think just to get to Easter and the well they are I mean I've been speaking to them too I mean they were you know they acknowledge privately this was a, a really bad start that uh, Anthony Albanese was really kind of you know felt terrible about it and obviously his confidence took a bit of a hit and uh, but they're pretty confident that he's the kind of guy who can get back on his game if they, they need to get to Easter they need to reset and then the question is how good is his game I mean there's some Ipsos polling around today that is really not flattering at all of Anthony Albanese isn't there? Oh, that was, um, look, that polling was quite striking. Um, I mean, we, we keep calling it polling. It's more focus grouping than polling. Yeah. But and it's only focus, it's only a couple of focus groups, but still it is very, it is, it's, not, it's not good reading for Anthony Albanese. No, look, it really wasn't, Fran. Look, I, I'm in Queensland this week. Um, I've been to, I think, seven or eight uh, mostly marginal electorates. I've met candidates and MPs from both sides and I've talked to a lot of people, you know, in shopping centres and restaurants. Now, that in no way is a scientific or representative sample either, but it's really struck me. People up here uh, that I've talked to, the majority of people up here I've talked to say, look, I don't mind Albanese or, you know, I'm not, I'm not massively opposed to him, but I don't really know what he stands for. People have a greater idea, uh, you know, who Prime Minister Scott Morrison is. Some like him, some don't, but it, that point about the fact that he hasn't defined himself yet we're five weeks or just about five weeks from polling day. That's a real risk for Labor, I think, Fran. It's a huge risk. Uh, now, we've often said, and I think that's based on the last election campaign, that Scott Morrison is a formidable campaigner. I've been speaking to senior Labor people who say uh, we knew he was good, but, oh, wow, he's so good at staying on message and hammering that message is Labor beyond just the the performance of Anthony Albanese? Do you think Labor had overstated just the dislike for the Prime Minister? You know, you don't have to like the Prime Minister. It doesn't mean you won't vote for him. They thought that that was enough, James, in terms of the strategy you've seen so far. Yeah, I, I think Labor was counting on that too much, PK. I mean, we've literally seen the PM stand up and say, I think probably more than once, you don't necessarily have to like me, but you, you, you know, you can trust that I'm competent. You know that you know what you're getting with me. 
You know that I can do this job. We've seen him flanked by colleagues, by state ministers, by backbenchers, by cabinet ministers, um, to kind of uh, uh, broaden him out, if you like, uh, PK. And I think it's I think it's worked. He is utterly relentless. He doesn't get knocked off uh, target or, or off course by questions. Today was really, for you know, listeners who who caught it, they'll know what I'm talking about. Today was the first press conference where he got a sustained set of questions from the travelling press pack. This, in this case, on a federal ICAC. Uh, it was great to see. They were really good questions. But even then, he handled them pretty well. Um, well he did. I mean, he's, a, he's an he expert at saying them. that black is white in a way, isn't it? Like just the, wax. On those questions of the national integrity, they were saying, well, hang on, you know, you say one... It, it was, in fact, Anthony Albanese's line from today too, which is this government, yeah. you know, over-promises and then never delivers, and that was basically the question of broken promises on religious discrimination, but particularly on a national integrity bill. The Prime Minister promised before the last election, in fact, I think it might, may have been at the Wentworth by-election, that they would bring one in. They haven't. And he just stands there and said, well, we put our legislation in and Labor didn't back it. Well, they didn't put final legislation in, did they? They never argued this no. in the House. They, they released an exposure draft. Um, look, I mean, he's, he's right when he says, of course, he says uh, he's correct to say, we don't have to agree with Labor on what the model should yeah, be. Yeah, of course. That's fine. But put the, put the legislation into Parliament. And then the, the, the sort of response or the fact that he blamed the Senate uh, effectively blame the Senate for not having passed the bill. Well, that, you know, the Senate doesn't, difficulties in the Senate don't preclude you from bringing no. it to the House. It was a bizarre answer. It didn't stack up. No, it didn't stack up. And yet he says it with this sort of confidence and, and wax down any kind of uh, critique of him. And that's that's how he keeps pushing through. I just want to go into a couple of the, the little issues. Well, they're not little for, for the people they impact on, but the other side issues that have um, played out this week. There's been a backflip from the Prime Minister this week regarding transgender issues. Earlier in the week, the Prime Minister flagged the coalition might support a bill banning transgender women from playing women's sport, backing in a Liberal Senator, Claire Chandler, who has a private member's bill on the matter. Now, the Prime Minister also backed his new handpicked candidate for the seat of Warringah, who is very passionate on this topic. This is what the Prime Minister said on Monday. I welcome Catherine Deeves' uh, selection and I was very pleased to play a, a role in that. I, I think she's raised very important issues and I think Claire Chandler has also been very outspoken and brave on these issues and, and I share their views. And uh, you have more to say about that at another time than, than, I, than I will. Well, I, we'll deal with that another time. Okay, so then came out and said that it wasn't the government policy after um, there was a bit of a backlash internally, politely put by, by senior people like Simon Birmingham. He didn't back the bill, neither did um, the government spokesperson um, uh, uh, for the campaign. So ultimately, this all happens, and at the same time, his own hand-picked candidate for Warringah uh, is exposed for uh, previous social media posts saying some pretty alarming things about transgender people. James, the Prime Minister, was he consistent on this? Didn't seem it to me. No, it was an out-and-out backflip. Um, look, he's, as you said, backed um, Claire Chandler's private member's bill in the past. You're right, PK. Um, he is responding to a backlash within his own party. There's, you know, talking to people, to Liberals in the New South Wales division, uh, you know, there's a fair bit of surprise that Catherine Deves was selected for Ringer. I mean, these weren't sort of um, social media posts that were unearthed. Her job uh, as head of Save Women's Sport, I mean, this was, she's a, literally a single issue candidate. It's, you know, either there was no vetting done at all, which I can't believe, or 
they knew who they were uh, pre-selecting for this seat and thought, well, look, she probably won't get over the line. Zali Stegall's looking pretty good. But, you know, this allows us to, to uh, appeal to a, the more conservative elements of our party, running yeah. a candidate like so this. The, I, I, can't I, I think that's a really otherwise. important thing to just examine for a moment because clearly uh, they knew, as you say, Catherine Davis has this position here. Clearly they've written off Warringah, didn't think that everyone would know that uh, Zali Segal lost no time demanding that for these comments this, um, this candidate be disendorsed. They knew it wouldn't play well in Warringah. So were they just trying to telegraph a message to what? seats in Western Sydney or seats in the Central Coast? And if so, what about all those other small L Liberal seats under, you know, some kind of offensive from uh, independents? Seats like North Sydney, seats like McKellar, seats like Wentworth, seats like Higgins. These comments about the trans um, community that Catherine Davis has made will not play well there and neither will the, the Prime Minister's decision to drop a National Integrity Commission. Does he not care about these seats? I, I mean, look, I, obviously I, I can't speak for the PM, Fran, but perhaps the calculus is that um, they may expect to lose some of those seats and indeed possibly Higgins uh, in, in Melbourne as well. But uh, by telegraphing these messages, maybe they're thinking as well, we'll pick up Parramatta or at least a, a red-hot chance, mm. perhaps Gilmore. Uh, there's a lot of chatter about Corangamite in outer suburban Melbourne now. It's a margin of about 5%, notional 3% after the redistribution with Hawke. You know, Liberals I speak to think that Rob Mitchell, the Labor incumbent, is in a bit of trouble. Labor people have said the same thing to me as well. Then maybe Corangamite. So it's maybe that kind of game of triangulation. Lose a couple of he- here, gain a couple more there, come out net one or two seats ahead and be returned to government in a majority. And James, Plus, I, I was... sure up Queensland. I was really... Yeah, well, Queensland, there's always Queensland. But um, yeah. I was really struck by some comments uh, in an interview with you, actually, this weekend from the uh, Liberal Party um, Vice President, I think, Tina McQueen. Yep. She told yep. you Trent Zimmerman and Katie Allen, so that's the member for North Sydney, the Liberal member for Higgins, um, could well lose their seats, but, quote, with a couple of lefties gone, we can get back to our core philosophy. So what did you think when you heard that and does that fit into the strategy you, you're surmising then could be at play? Uh, well, look, first I double-checked the quotes just to make sure that they were on the record, Fran, and they were, thankfully. Um, uh, I was surprised uh, by how frank uh, Tina was. But, I mean, I think she sort of voiced publicly what we were just discussing and, and what perhaps more Liberals are discussing or considering or pondering privately, that the path to victory is narrow. It's a goat track. There's one way to get there for Scott Morrison. And maybe it does invo- uh, involve losing a couple of those more moderate seats that maybe aren't going to be Liberal seats for a long time anyway. So, yeah, perhaps that is the calculus. Now, it's also worth mentioning in this podcast that George Christensen uh, made this decision to leave the LNP and, and he, he you know re- basically said he wasn't going to be recontesting his seat of Dawson. And then he announced uh, this week that he will join Pauline Hanson's One Nation to run for the unwinnable third Senate seat. James, you're up in Queensland. Do you think minor right-wing parties like One Nation or Clive Palmer's United Australia Party are likely to present a challenge? I mean, he he won't win that in the third spot, so it looks like maybe it's a bit self-serving too for him. Yeah, I mean, it's a $105,000 payday, isn't it, by running in that seat? (laughs) Explain that. Explain that, can you? Well, very simply, if you run for a seat uh, or if you're a sitting member of parliament, you run and you lose, you get a six-month payout. Uh, he had asked, I've, uh, I understand, by you know, he was asked by the LNP, or sorry, asked the LNP to be allowed to sort of qualify for that. They knocked him back for it, you know, let him run somewhere else 
an unwinnable Senate seat or whatever. He was knocked back for that. So he's running for One Nation to ensure his payout, basically. Um, for the One Nation, the calculus is they get a high-profile uh, campaigner on board for six weeks and you know, maybe they win a few more votes and that, of course, translates into dollars from the AEC down the track too. Well, I guess it doesn't just translate into dollars. I mean, he has a massive following uh, in North Queensland in particular. He's got, a, and, and, and more broadly than that, this big social media presence that he's built up through the pandemic with the um, anti-vaccine, anti-vax mandate, anti-lockdown position that he's had. So he would bring all that kind of group and get their attention focused on Pauline Hanson. She will, or, you know, you'd think she'd have a very good shot of a of a Senate seat, you know, would it boost their numbers enough to get them to up? I don't know. So the 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 calculations of where votes are going to go, not just in Queensland, but some other places too, given that One Nation and the United Australia Party, Clive Palmer's party, are running candidates in every single lower house seat as well. There's no real sense of how those, um, those votes um, the preferences flow, this could have a really big impact in some areas of the country, couldn't it? And and, yeah. and and this presence of George Christensen just sort of turbocharges that for One Nation a bit. Yeah, look, that's absolutely right. And, of course, up here, um, Campbell Newman is at the top of the ticket for the Liberal Democratic Party as well, the LDP. So there's three um, really sort of fairly high-profile uh, uh, right-wing parties or centre-right parties, if you like, in addition to the Liberal Party. Where it goes here is anyone's guess. I'd, I mean, my guess is perhaps my semi-educated guess is perhaps One Nation wins that third, you know, what would actually effectively be the sixth spot on the Senate ticket, mm. but the third ticket for right wing. Oh, sorry, third seat for right wing parties, probably just edging out Amanda Stoker and United Australia. But you know, the complications are preferences, as you say, people not necessarily exhausting their preferences. Um, you know, just numbering one, for example, in the Senate. Uh, and then, you know, while that might happen in Queensland, what happens in New South Wales? Well, Palmer's doing a better job. I mean, if anything, I've been struck, and there are, there's Palmer advertising on TV and billboards yeah. everywhere, Fred. Like, it's everywhere up here. And it's the message has changed from freedom, freedom, freedom to save your home, we will lock in a 3% home loan. Um, you know, it's it's a strong message. Um, it's not actually economically achievable uh, in a policy <laughs> sense, but, just, but it's appealing. Just put that right? to the side. Yeah, just that whole like it's impossible thing aside. Um, that's an appealing message to people who are feeling uncertain about their economic future. Um, but what strikes me again and again, the Queenslanders I'm talking to is they say, you know, I don't mind Clive. I, I like some of his ideas, but I don't think you can trust him. Um, I think Hanson is probably connected with people over a longer period of time. Um, I think she's more likely to sort of slip into that final spot ahead of him. Just finally, James, on policy, and I think policy is very important. We won't neglect it in this podcast. Labor has dumped its plans to review the rate of job seeker, which is now about $46 a day. Um, so that's a decision they made because uh, it seems to me they didn't want to raise expectations. A review means, well, it'll go up. Like, why else are you reviewing it? So they wanted to put that to bed. It's clearly disappointed a lot of the groups that have been lobbying for it and clearly the people who are living on the sort of poverty line uh, will be very, very uh, disappointed by it, who rely on this uh, rate to just survive. At the same time, they've tried to focus on health this week. Just give me your analysis of where they're going policy-wise. Um, I, I, I'm not sure where they're going policy-wise, PK. I was surprised at the health announcement this week. I, I didn't think it was the sort of announcement that would capture, capture a lot of imagination or a lot of minds or a lot of votes, certainly. Um, the Centrelink announcement, you know, the... the payment announcement. Again, surprising. I mean, perhaps the calculus is 
um, these are, this is money, this is this is the sort of promises that people expect us to make. They're not going to change many votes, so we'll put them to one side for now. We need to win government. We'll, we need to focus on other issues. But I've, frankly, I've been underwhelmed by Labor on the policy front, and I think a lot of voters probably have been to um, PK. They need just, something just, one, to be fair. just on that note, underwhelmed on the policy front from Labor, but also underwhelmed on the policy front from the government. Those announcements have been pretty spare too. In fact, re-announcements, some of them. Yeah, look, absolutely. Um, the, I mean, the announcement from the Prime Minister today down in uh, Launceston, the, the timber you know, industry announcement, that's squarely and, and obviously targeted mm. uh, at retaining his two seats in northern Tassie, Bass and Braddon, and maybe having a swing, a, a decent chance of winning Lions. I mean, it, it's, yeah, the calculus there is clear. Uh, as in the 2019 election, he's going after, you know, blokes who wear high-vis vests. Um, worked for him last time, he's trying it again. I wouldn't have called that <laughs> an, an outstanding uh, policy masterstroke, uh, Fran, at all. James, that was fabulous. Thank you so much for taking time off the trail up there in Queensland where you're moving about and testing the temperature um, in those some of those critical seats. It's great to have you. Thanks. Thanks very much, Fran. Thanks, PK. See ya. See ya. Questions without notice. The Leader of the Opposition. Thank you, and, and I'm pleased the question time at least is happening, Mr Speaker. Yeah. And we have a question that starts like this. Hey, ladies, big fan of everything you do. Hey, Fran, this is somebody who's not attacking us on Twitter. Uh, <laughs> I've been wondering this for a while. I know it's probably quite unlikely, but given that our political leaders are usually in the House of Reps, what would happen if a party leader failed to be re-elected in their seat, but their party still won a majority? Good luck for the next five weeks. Stay caffeinated. Tyson, we are, and thank you for asking the question. <laughs> well, yeah, I'm, I'm fully caffeinated, I can assure you. Uh, I think, PK, it's as simple as that the um, actually people don't vote uh, elect a leader, they elect a party and then the party gets together and selects their leader, don't they? That's so exactly they just select another one? Exactly what would happen. Look, the scenario uh, is unlikely to happen because the two leaders, uh, Anthony Albanese and Scott Morrison, are very safe in their seats, right? Um, I would predict that both of them will win their seats comfortably. Uh, but... Uh, John Howard lost his seat of Benelong. Mm -hmm. uh, now, he lost the whole election too, so it wasn't an issue. But what they would do, we don't have a presidential system. You're not directly voting. It's very confusing for some people, but we're not directly voting for a leader. So after they said, oh, how sad they would be that this had happened and it would be very unusual in Australia too, so it would be super weird, they would then uh, get together as a caucus or a party room, elect a new leader. It would probably be the deputy leader of those parties. Uh, it would be Josh Frydenberg. I reckon my money's on him still. I know Peter Dutton's a bit of a threat too. Or in the Labor Party, a couple of people, you'd have Jim Chalmers, you'd have Richard Miles, uh, Tanya Plibersek, that will be contenders, but it's not going to happen. But that's what could happen and it would easily happen. It would happen quite quickly as well because we don't directly vote for leaders. No, that's right. So thank you, Tyson, and everyone enjoy the next five weeks. Keep sending in your questions. We really love getting them. You can tweet us using the hashtag The Party Room or email your questions to thepartyroom at abc.net.au. And keep reviewing us, please. I'm loving your reviews. I read them, you know, just before I go to sleep every night. It's, it's great. Um, so thank you so much for that. If you're loving the podcast, maybe you'd like to come and see us in person. And if you're in and around Canberra, you've got a chance to do that because we are doing a party room live in Canberra. 
Yes, election edition. Now, we did one last campaign. It was excellent. Full house. I had such a good time. I know you did too, Fran. We're coming to Canberra Theatre Centre on Monday, the 2nd of May at 7pm. I'm going to bed extra late for you guys, so please come <laughs> along. We have some wonderful special guests, so don't miss it. So get uh, onto the Canberra Theatre Centre website to buy those tickets. Yeah, it'll be so much fun, and we would really love to see your little faces there in the audience. Or big faces or medium faces. We'll see you there. Bye. See you, PK. See you, Fran. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.